These are the things that I learned during the eighth week of 2011, February 21st through February 27th. February 21st, better understanding of what a segmentation fault is. Specifically, this is a computer term. I'm going to quote a description from Indiana University stating, a segmentation fault aka a seg fault, is a common condition that causes programs to crash. They are often associated with a file called core. Seg faults are caused by a program trying to read or write an illegal memory location. I couldn't say it better than that. I had a friend who was a computer science major. I was also a computer science major at one point before switching to IT. The IT major had not existed when I first started college. So I started in computer science, which was the closest you could get before switching over, and then I cut over. But my friend remained in computer science and saw it to the end. This segmentation fault was something that came up in a conversation, and I think I remember just asking, what exactly does that entail? And that took me down the rabbit hole of figuring out what it was. It sounds kind of like a generic error, really in a way that's kind of what it is, but if you really dive into the details, as with most computer science terms, nothing is nearly as simple as it seems. And it has to do with programs writing to memory, and you have your active memory, you have your disk memory. It gets very complicated very quickly. There's an unexpected amount of math involved. But hey, welcome to computers. You might be asking, what's a down-to-earth example of a segmentation fault? Well, I'll also take a look at Indiana University's article on this. This one's pretty simple. Say you have an array called foo, and it's defined from 0 to 999. But if a program tries to access place number 1000, which doesn't exist because we're starting from 0 and ending at 999, still a thousand items, but no item specifically marked as 1000 in the array. It results in a seg fault if that memory location lies outside of the segment where the foo array resides. Even if it doesn't cause a seg fault, it still is a bug. That's kind of the really, really simplified version of this. If you try to access something you're not allowed to access, or if it doesn't exist, it's causing a seg fault. And that's one of the most common ways of triggering it. It's not the only way. But from an understanding perspective, I think this gets the job done. February 22nd. Email spam is a term originally coined by Monty Python. Let us return back to 1990, a time when technology was a lot simpler, the internet was exponentially smaller, and we were starting to figure out what to call annoying obnoxious walls of texts in internet relay chat rooms. All of this culminates in the new definition of the word spam for the electronic era. A period-appropriate newsgroup posting explains, Spam refers to a Monty Python skit where Vikings sing spam at a lady who floats down the ceiling in a restaurant where they serve spam with everything. The verb to spam 
would be to send lots and lots of useless information, in particular the word spam, over and over to someone, thus scrolling their screen with lots and lots of lines of spam, 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 etc. It has been generalized to mean sending lots of crap to servers as well as people you want to annoy. Quoth Patrick J. Wetmore, September 26th, 1990, at 10.11.42 p.m. There are other accounts of the term spam being used in the electronic world. In the early days, it was considered spamming if you posted the same thing over and over again, be it posting a bunch of the same word, or posting an advertisement, or some kind of message across multiple bulletin board systems or chat rooms. Effectively a message that didn't seem genuine, or not really crafted by a human out of passion, but rather for financial gain, or attention, or to be used as a means to an end. The problem escalated onwards, through Usenet, and eventually email. It gradually morphed and evolved into what we consider spam today, which is just unwanted junk mail, or advertisements, or phishing campaigns, or whatever it is today. It is an umbrella term. But spam had humble beginnings in the early internet as annoying messages, perhaps not malicious, maybe just repeated and not posted with enough restraint that they should have contained. To tie it all together, it was considered a callback to the infamous Monty Python skit, with the word spam just being said over and over and over again, and it was a perfect allegory reference. February 23rd. The first tablet was released in 1989. This can't be right. I thought tablets were invented on April 3rd, 2010 by Steve Jobs. No, tablets existed way before the iPad. Remember Windows XP Tablet PC Edition and all of those variants? So those existed, but we can go back even further. Remember the Apple Newton? It was sort of a half-step between larger than an iPhone but smaller than an iPad. But again, that wasn't the first tablet. No, we need to go back to 1989 with the GridPad 1910, the first tablet to be released to the consumer market. This little beast was effectively a portable IBM PCXT, a popular desktop model crammed down into a tablet form factor. According to the article that I found, this unit was used primarily for inventory purposes and the like, apparently used within Chrysler and the United States Army. This thing featured a beastly 2 megabytes of RAM, a 640 by 480 graphics mode, with two whole colors, that's a monochrome display, a sound PC speaker, and a wired pen to interact with the touchscreen. And that 20 megabyte hard disk was great for holding maybe a couple of text documents, if that. Fast forward just a few years later, and Jeff Hawkins, one of the chief designers of the Palm Pilot, used the grid pad as his inspiration 
to design a smaller, monochromatic, handheld personal digital assistant, or PDA, which took the world by storm. I know I personally owned two of these, and that then ballooned into smartphones, and then ultimately iPhone, Android, Windows Phone, or whatever else is currently out there that has revolutionized the way we think of computing, untethering it from the desk and making it much more portable. But all of this traces back to the grid pad and its eventual evolution all the way up to Apple and Google and Microsoft. Anytime someone tells you that the iPad was the beginning of tablet PCs, you can confidently tell them that they are wrong. And it all started with the grid pad 1910. You may check out the show notes for any fun links that detail all of this. Bear in mind that these computers of the 90s with the monochromatic displays weren't capable of nearly as much as what they can do today. Think back in 1989. You know what else was a handheld device with a monochromatic screen? It was the Game Boy. It could play a mean game of Tetris and Castlevania and Mega Man and Super Mario Land. But try to imagine it maybe doing a complex Excel spreadsheet with thousands of rows and lots of references and calculations and tables and charts, it wouldn't be able to hold up nearly as well. We weren't dealing with monumental exponential computing power. Moore's Law hadn't exactly taken off just quite yet, so we had to wait a couple of years. Regarding these early devices like the Gridpad, the Palm Pilot, the Newton, etc., they were really good at showing things like a basic calendar, and maybe using a larger desktop PC as the hub for syncing data to and from, but they weren't quite independent, individual, always connected devices. And they relied on a more powerful, stationary desktop system to serve any truly useful purpose. They were still super cool devices, though. It really felt like the future to use them, especially in the 90s and a bit of the 2000s, before smartphones. February 24th, Intel Lightpeak Technology. I was quite a tech news enthusiast at the time, announced this very same day, originally rumored and codenamed as Intel's Lightpeak Technology. Intel announced the Thunderbolt interface, which debuted with Apple's latest at the time MacBook Pros. This was basically a brand new port and technology that was to replace the older Firewire port that Apple previously used, which was touted as one of the fastest buses available, which would trounce USB 2.0 speed and early USB 3.0 speeds. Thunderbolt was promised to deliver transfer speeds maybe more on par with fiber channel connections. According to the Apple release, they were bragging about 10 gigabits per second, when USB speeds were still down in the low megabits per second. That's an exponential increase. It was considered next generation, and it was super cool. What wasn't super cool, though, was it was originally mostly exclusive to Apple devices, and the cables were incredibly expensive, and there was a licensing model that basically drove the price up anywhere it was used. The port also didn't really help. It had utilized Apple's previous mini display port style, which meant on PCs, 
it wasn't used in a wide variety. It did eventually make its way to some devices such as the Microsoft Surface, but it never really super took off, and perhaps maybe that's one of the reasons that Intel's Thunderbolt 3 technology ended up adopting the USB-C port standard, which is much more widely adopted and used without requiring special cables or dongles. But anyways, going back to the time of the announcement, we ended up using some Thunderbolt interfaces at the TV station when we purchased a new iMac, which didn't have native fiber channel connection abilities, unless you bought a little adapter that plugged in through its Thunderbolt port, and then suddenly you got those fast fiber speeds on an iMac when you previously could only get it on the desktop tower Mac Pro. It was sort of like a miniaturization of really fast technology. I just thought it was interesting that I wrote down the technology as Intel Light Peak. I do remember it being codenamed and rumored as such before the announcement, but when it was shown off, it was called Thunderbolt. And note, this was before the lightning cable came out at Apple, so I think it was a little tongue-in-cheek that they called it lightning because they really wanted it to synergize with the Thunderbolt standard. Thunderbolt is still around today. There's been a few iterations, including Thunderbolt 3, which is what we're currently on right now, and I believe Thunderbolt 4 is on the horizon, but it's not really a frontline feature anymore. You don't really see it in press releases other than, yeah, it's there. The sheen wears off over time. That being said, it's still pretty impressive. It's one of the fastest buses you can use for transferring files and driving displays nowadays. February 25th. Hockey games can end in ties after overtime. Boring. The authenticity of the statement depends on what year you are talking about, as well as what hockey league you are talking about. For the NHL, which is the American National Hockey League, all games since the 2005-2006 season actually do not allow games to end in ties. Rather, there is a very sophisticated overtime and shootout session that can determine a winner at any cost. And any possible outcome will end up in one team winning and one team losing. I have a feeling that these rules were changed mostly to increase the action on the rink and to prevent low-scoring games and possibly lower ticket sales due to less action on the field. Statistically, a lot of games ended up in ties. According to HockeyAnswer.com, 14% of all games in the 2003-2004 season, 170 out of 1230, ended in ties, which is not a great number to really brag about when you think about it. Hockey is a very adrenaline-fueled, high-powered, high-energy, combat-driven sport. To have it end in a tie is very anticlimactic, and if that happens a lot, it's really tough to build your brand and your product, particularly with the NHL. I'm not entirely sure why I learned this on this day. On February 25th, 2011, the Boston Bruins won 5-3 against the Ottawa Senators. So this must have been just happenstance or coincidental, or perhaps I was discussing hockey with someone. I'm not sure exactly whom but they must have told me that 
Apparently, hockey games can end in ties, but what they didn't tell me was that the rules had since changed since that year that the NHL switched over to no ties, there must always be a winner. After doing some additional digging and checking the NCAA rules, as well as some historical scoring data for 2011 at least, games can indeed end in ties for this league in particular, as the UNH Wildcats had a tie game on February 11th against Merrimack, 1-1 to in overtime. And there you have it, there's your clarification. There are no ties in the NHL, making it less boring. That being said, college leagues, such as the NCAA, can end in ties, at least as of 2011. Glad I could clarify this. Not sure I would have actually revisited this otherwise. I'm not a super big NHL fan. I only really tune in when the Bruins are playing in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I'll occasionally attend a UNH hockey game every once in a blue moon. February 26th, Old Mac Emulators. I dusted off a lot of old memories, and I also spent several hours recalling how I did half of this, including walking myself through all of the steps once more and actually expanding upon this knowledge. So let's talk about Old Mac Emulators, and specifically the one that I worked with in 2011 was called Mini VMac. That is not the only emulator choice available, but this was the one that I used, and most importantly, it was the one that ended up working. Comparatively, Macintosh emulation from the 90s is a really small task for a modern computer to perform. These computers are exponentially less complex than what we have today, and thus, Mini VMac is incredibly compatible with both Mac and Windows, and you can run it without breaking much of a sweat. What is confusing about Mini VMac is all of the hoops you have to jump through to translate modern software and file methodologies back into the vintage computing methodologies. What I'm getting at here is when you set up Mini VMac, you first have to know all the different kinds of files that you need to get this thing even running. It starts with acquiring the images for the Macintosh system software, which was the operating system of the time. You also have to locate the ROM file by pulling it off of a legitimate Macintosh. It is legally gray to acquire it online, so that's why I'm not discussing going out and getting the ROM file online. Officially, you should really pull it off of a real Macintosh. After you do that, you then have to understand how the translation between the emulator and the host operating system works regarding disk usage. But luckily, there is a website for MiniVMac which provides all of these handy utilities and files. The problem is it can be so overwhelming because there's just so many of them. And because of this, I had trouble wrapping my head around it even back in 2011, although I did get some of it working at the time. To get around it in modern day, I found a YouTube tutorial from just a few months ago, actually, from the time I'm recording this, which walked me through setting up an old vintage Mac environment in the emulator perfectly. And I was able to reproduce it, and I wrote down instructions for future use, because when I was a kid, I used the old classic Macintosh in school a lot, because that was in the computer lab. There were lots of old games that we played, like 
the Oregon Trail, of course, Number Munchers, Super Munchers, Word Munchers, and a couple others that of which I don't remember the names, but someday maybe I'll recall them. Oh, and Thinking Things. Really, really fun software. Some of the stuff is really, you know, kind of exclusive to my childhood memories, but I'm sure others had similar ones as well. Maybe if you're listening to this, you also grew up on the vintage Macintosh computer lab educational environment, as that was really, really common back then in the late 80s, early 90s. So that was kind of the basis for me setting this up and hoping to find all the software online, most of which has become either abandonware or it's just freely available through archival sites like Macintosh Garden. I was able to set up a Macintosh System 6 and Macintosh System 7.5 environment for both the black and white Macintosh Plus and the color Macintosh 2 vMac emulator variants. Some of the frustrations of this emulator were trying to figure out what some of the old file extensions were that were used back in the day, particularly a rather esoteric-to-me format called the Stuff It file, which can be sort of compared to a modern-day zip or 7-zip or RAR format, but this was a format that old Macintosh users and computers tended to gravitate towards. It's a little bit awkward to use with a modern computer, but there are a few programs that do work with it. Unfortunately, the Stuff It Expander for Macintosh System 6 and 7 seems to be a little bit finicky. Certain SIT Stuff It stuffed files, depending on when they were made or what version of the operating system and Stuff It software that they were made in, doesn't necessarily properly read inside the old vintage emulator. And I'm not sure how to necessarily get around that still. I found a couple of creative workarounds which involved layers of transferring in and out various formats and converting them. All of this really isn't for the faint of heart. You have to have a bit of patience when you're working with this. But the payoff is nice. It gives you a nice feeling of sort of building it up and figuring out stuff and problem solving. All the things that make your brain just tick. I also looked into another emulator called Basilisk and I wasn't really successful with this whatsoever other than maybe getting it to boot one time, but I wasn't able to understand quite how it operated or how to load anything into and out of this emulator. It seemed like a much more rough-around-the-edges program, designed by a hobbyist rather than Mini VMAC, which I could just kind of figure out a little easier with the help of a tutorial. The whole scene is kind of that scrappy, almost open-source community-like setup where it's not the easiest thing to set up in the world. Once you figure it out, it works great, but you really have to hunt, peck, and do some research, as well as have some good organizational skills to get it all up and functional. I'll leave a bunch of links in the show notes for all the stuff that I used to help me rejuvenate my knowledge on this, as well as help you get a working vintage Mac setup if you are so interested. Hope it helps. And last but not least, February 27th. The Mac equivalent of the tree command from the Windows command prompt. Change to a folder and enter this in terminal. Find.printpipesed-e apostrophe s semicolon bracket caret forward slash end bracket, asterisk, forward slash, semicolon, pipe, 
underscore 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 semicolon g semicolon s semicolon underscore 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 pipe semicolon pipe semicolon g apostrophe oh i'm sorry do i need to repeat that do i need to say it louder for any of the folks in the back i thought it was funny just to maybe enunciate that i wasn't quite sure whatever to replace it with verbally anyways so what is this mess of a command that you can run well not only is it compatible for Mac OS is also compatible for Linux as well, as I recently confirmed with my Raspberry Pi setup. This is a crazy way to display all the files in a directory recursively, as well as give a bit of a visual cue as to how many folders deep each folder and file are. In Windows, this is all represented via a command called tree. However, in Unix, particularly with this command, you need to get creative, and all of these characters seemingly randomly strung together are actually coherently composed as regular expressions, which are ways of manipulating the text and lines and symbols such that the computer can translate into its own language and then write back to the human as some sort of understandable graphical representation. It isn't super practical, but I remember getting this command because I had a friend who was in a computer class and for some reason they were asking them how to list in a command line the ways to get all of the files in a folder in a tree structure. And I have no idea what this curriculum was, especially for such a beginner class. And I remember they, they messaged me and I had to Google it myself because I was like, I don't really know. But I found this command, and I thought it was crazy. The fact that it actually worked was insane to me. I had a MacBook and was able to test it before sending it over to them, and they confirmed that it worked. And I guess the professor accepted it as a valid answer. I'm not sure what they were actually looking for for a real answer, but this does work. And in computing, whatever works often ends up being the final correct documented answer. So this command is something that has not much practicality other than if you need a visual representation in a command line of all your files and folders in a tree without any better utility available to you, I guess this will hit the spot. It was definitely something I learned, and I do have it in my toolkit of command line commands if I ever do need it. I think this is the first time I've really run it ever since back in 2011. This was incredibly fun to learn, and it's nice to know. Regular expressions are really awesome. I use them in different contexts in realistic settings at work. They're a little less complex than this. If you want further reading and want to go down a rabbit hole, check out regular expression commands. That will definitely fill up an afternoon or evening with research and knowledge. This concludes the eighth week of February regarding the things that I learned. This was quite a week, a lot of historical computing stuff, some computer science knowledge, and some very modern up-to-the-minute announcements from Intel, as well as a couple things about sports and hockey, clarifying when a tie can happen, when a tie won't happen, how the Mac emulator scene is frustrating but rewarding at the same time, as well as insane command line regular expression madness that yields really productive results. 
This week was super fun for at least me. If you aren't necessarily technically savvy, this was not your week for sure for things to learn. Or maybe it was. I guess it depends on your understanding of it. I didn't really have any fun pictures this week other than one whiteboard drawing depicting what I could only imagine was a silly acronym definition which spelled out Unibody Robot Cattle Robot Unicorns. I think URC went to originally stand for Undergraduate Research Conference. I couldn't tell you what the RU stood for. Not entirely sure what I recall that being. Anyways, that's the only photo I have this week. Nothing else particularly fun to speak of. So that concludes this week. Just another second semester, mid-February, nearing the end of the month stretch of things learned. I think we were probably getting close to midterms around this point in the year, so it was just the slog to May. Things Learned is a podcast that I produce solely. I pull some music from archive.org and other royalty-free repositories. If you would like to know what any of this music is, check out the show notes, and I'd be happy to oblige. Check out the show notes for any additional supplemental material based on the things that I learned. Anything I might have mentioned along the way, I'll try to provide some details as I see fit, or fill in any holes that I might have missed, or if any link can clarify something far better than I can explain verbally, it'll be there. If you are a new listener to Things Learned, thank you very much for coming on board, and I hope you subscribe. If you are a returning listener, thank you for staying on board and listening to Things Learned all this time. I really appreciate it. If you think this podcast deserves a half-decent rating, feel free to go give it a rating wherever you rate your podcast, on Apple or Google or wherever it may be. I will be back for more Things Learned the next time a new episode comes out. Thank you very much again for listening to Things Learned. It's been a blast. I will talk to you next time.